Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. Well, as I said, we're not at the end of our Platforms and Pillars sermon, but we're at the end of my bit. Uh, which I think has been 11 sermons in a row. It's been a really fun journey. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was a funny clap. Um, and it's effectively what this series has been is contrasting this concept as we've looked through the book of Exodus, that what the world encourages us to do is build a platform for ourselves, to place ourselves on a kind of dais, above all others, and we've contrasted to what God does as he brings his people out of Egypt, out of exploitation, enslavement, he delivers them. And in the wilderness, they learn how to be pillars in the living temple that God is building in the world. And so Trudy's gonna share next week, and in many ways, this book of Exodus has been a living Scripture, all scriptures, the living and God breathed. But for us, it's just been such an alive scripture as the image of walking through the wilderness, not knowing what the next step is, going with God the whole way through difficulty, through trial, but walking with God, him going ahead, his spirit as a pillar ahead of us. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to end really looking at how do you not build a pillar? How do you build a pillar? And to do this, I want to jump forward a bit in the story. The story of the book of Exodus is a story of release from slavery in Egypt. It's of meeting God at Mount Sinai, which we looked at the other week. It's then the building of the tabernacle, this dwelling place of God. The tabernacle is then moved to Jerusalem. Solomon builds it into a temple. When the Babylonians come in, that temple is destroyed. It's rebuilt in these various projects. Uh, And then you have King Herod who rebuilds it at the beginning of around the time when Jesus was doing his ministry. Now, I think we've got a picture here. uh, And if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll find that the temple is not there. That actually where the temple was or or archaeologists think that the temple was is the Al-Aska Mosque is on the top. And what you see in this picture is what is known as the Wailing Wall. These are sort of the foundations of what the temple sat upon. And this is one of the most disputed places in the world, an absolute flashpoint. There are often clashes between Israeli security forces and Palestinians here. Uh, Different groups tend to have different moments of high drama at this place. But the reason it's called the Wailing Wall is because many religious Jews come and pray at this wall and there's a sense of loss that the temple is not there. But there's also this sense of conflictedness when we look at what this is. This is known as the sort of second temple and Herod was the one who sort of finished this project off. And Herod is, as we find him in the scriptures, a conflicted character. He is half Jewish, yet he is the king of the Jews. That is his title. And he is incredibly brutal. We see in the scriptures Israel wanting a king, 
And there's a sort of warning about wanting a king. And then we see these stories of King David, who is this, this man after God's heart. But then we see this series of other kings who don't live up to what God has for them. And Herod, in many ways, is one of those kings in that line, almost the culmination. Herod is an incredibly brutal tyrant. He kills his wife and two of his sons because he's paranoid that they're plotting against him. And when the news of Jesus' birth, the coming of the Messiah, the King of the Jews, comes across the desk of Herod, he initiates something which has a resonance to where we began in the story of Exodus. The story of Exodus comes where Pharaoh decrees that the children, the boys of the Hebrews should be wiped out. And Herod does something very similar to what Pharaoh did. He decrees that because this Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, that the boys, the infants of Bethlehem should be massacred. And so what we see here is this great irony. It's a tragedy that the king of the Jews is actually acting like Pharaoh. And just like we explored earlier in this series, one of the things that Pharaoh did to legitimize his rule was to build. He built great projects, sort of temples to himself in stone. And Herod didn't just rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, he actually built four temples. Only one of them was the temple in Jerusalem. Now, three of these temples were pagan. They were not for the worship of Yahweh, God of the Bible. And all of them were dedicated to his sponsor, Caesar Augustus, the great Roman emperor, who kept Herod in place because Judea was seen as this very dangerous province of the Roman Empire where there was always revolutions and revolts and there were this group of people called the Sicarii who almost like sort of guerrillas of the day who would come up behind Romans and stab them, Roman soldiers. So one of the things that Herod does to legitimize his rule as keeping two sides happy, keeping the Romans happy, but also keeping his Jewish followers happy is he begins this big rebuild of the temple in Jerusalem. Now we know in many of the stories of scripture that people like Haggai and Zerubbabel were actually rebuilding the temple after this period of exile when the Babylonians had taken the best and the brightest of Israel back to Babylon. And instead of building on top of those foundations, the contemporary historian around the time, Josephus, says this. He says, so Herod took away the old foundations and laid others and erected the temple upon them. This is a little clue. God had led Haggai, Zerubbabel, these people to rebuild the temple. But instead of building upon the foundations that God was laying, he rips them up. And this is an indicator, this is a clue of what's going on in the story. You see, Herod's underlying motivation for building was not driven by faith, it was driven by a desire for fame. And Josephus wrote this about Herod's temple. 
He said, Herod in the 18th year of his reign undertook a very great work. That is to build of himself the temple of God and make it larger in compass and raise it to a most magnificent altitude as esteeming it to be the most glorious of all his actions. And this would be sufficient for an everlasting memorial to him. What was the command that God had given on top of the mountain to Moses? Build a dwelling place for me. Build it to the exact specifications that I give you. At the end of the few chapters, at the end of Exodus, we see the detail of how this dwelling place of God should be built. What we see here is the continuation of this story. We see Herod is doing something very, very different. Herod is building not a dwelling place for God. Herod is building something for himself. Now, if we can actually just go back to the picture of the Wailing Wall for a second, I just want to show you something. What's really interesting is the temple above is gone. This is not the temple. This is actually the Temple Mount. Now, that's what this place is called. The Temple Mount, which is the Al-Aqsa Mosque is on, and you've got the Wailing Wall there. What was the Temple Mount? Well, the Temple Mount was part of the construction that Herod put underneath the temple. And actually, this building was the biggest temple in the whole of the Roman Empire. Like, Herod was going big here. And so he didn't just want to build a temple to God. He wanted to build a temple in a a sense to himself. So what did he build it upon? What is is the temple mount? What is the wailing wall? This architecturally is a giant stinking platform. Herod builds the temple on a giant platform to his own glory. Something was off. And something was off not just with Herod. Something had been off for some time. Now, if you go back, this offness doesn't just begin with Herod. David one day asked the question, why does God exist or dwell in simply a tent? Should he not have a more magnificent house? And his son Solomon is then given the task of building the temple. But if you read this story, it on the surface reading seems like God is there, moves into this new kind of house, but there's all kinds of details which seem to be off. And a number of biblical scholars have noted that you've got to read the accounts of Solomon building the temple with Exodus in mind. And in Exodus, Moses builds the temple and he does it exactly as what God asks him to do. But there's a few things, a few details which are off with Solomon. Solomon, God wants him to build it, but he seems to go to absolute town on it. Now, one of the things that Solomon does to build it, when the temple is, sorry, when the tabernacle is built, it actually says in Exodus that the way that it's built is all the people come together in this great team effort to build. They willingly hand over things, their, their jewelry, and they, they melt it down to make the different things. It is a group effort of the people of God to build the tabernacle. That's not what Solomon does. Solomon enslaves 
people to build the temple. Who does this sound like? Pharaoh. The pain of enslavement goes through generations and we later on see when the great tragedy occurs and the people of God are split into a north and south kingdom, when they recall why this split happened, some of this goes back to the pain of enslavement that had happened earlier when Solomon had drafted all these people in against their will to build a temple. And when you read the account of Solomon building the temple, it continually speaks of Solomon and his glory before it speaks of God's glory. And this is in contrast to Moses, where it's God is clearly in charge and the central character in the story of building a dwelling place for him. We also read that Solomon, who takes many, many wives and concubines, against the will of God, also builds in the temple complex, there's the temple, but he builds palaces around it, and he also creates a palace for the daughter of Pharaoh. Something's off. But we begin to see how things are off when we compare the commandment that God gives, and we're gonna have them both up on the screen in a second, the commandment that God gives to construct the temple where he gets these craftsmen and he fills them with the spirit of God. We'll read this first, Exodus 31, verses two to six, where it says this, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I've filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and engage all kinds of crafts, Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahamasak, in the tribe of Dan to help him out. Also, I've given to all the skilled workers to make everything I've commanded. So I've given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I've commanded you. This is Holy Spirit-driven tradies. Like, this is where the power is coming from, the skill, the wisdom. It's coming from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon these people. Now, when Solomon builds, let's read it. A lot of parallels. But ask the question as you read it, what's missing? King Solomon sent for Haram, whose mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali and whose father was from Tyre. He was a skilled craftsman in bronze filled with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge for all kinds of bronze work. He came to King Solomon and completed all the work assigned to him. What's missing? The spirit. Haram is not filled with spirit. He is not building in the power of God. The difference is he has skill. He has wisdom of how to build. But what's actually missing is the God-directedness that we see when God builds the tabernacle through the people of God. We also see that God, in the first account, uses a whole bunch of different people, various craftsmen and skilled workers who are all empowered by the Holy Spirit. But here, this is just to the glory of Haram. Why? Because Haram is the master builder of the day. This is like you want a big project and you want to have an art gallery, so you get the best architect in the world to build it, which is going to cast glory on your city. Now, also of note is, His father is from Tyre. Tyre was a Canaanite city. The people of God were told to have nothing to do with Canaanites because of their idolatrous influence would then seep into Israel. So think about this. Solomon is engaging an idol builder to build the temple of God. 
Now, Haram builds pillars, but... 1 Kings 7, 21 says, He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The one to the south he named Jachin, and the one to the north, Boaz. Now, if you look at these pillars, there's something that's remarkable about them. They're really ornamental. They may have played a role taking some of the weight as pillars are meant to, but they're made of bronze. These are built on the back of slave labor. What are these? These are pillars that are turned into a platform for the glory of Solomon. David Hayes, biblical scholar, writes this. The physical temple that Solomon builds, the high point of his reign, is spectacular from a human point of view, but theologically is clouded with numerous negative connotations from the beginning. It is not a step forward in Israel's relationship with God, but rather a step backward. The building of the temple is secondary in importance to God in comparison to faithfulness and obedience, which is what he really wants from Solomon. God wants Solomon to build a temple. God wants a dwelling place. But the dwelling place can't be a platform to human glory. And what we see here is that even our best attempts to build a dwelling place, to create spaces for the people of God to meet with God, can be confused by conflicted motivations. So, how to build a pillar. We've learned how not to build a pillar. How to build a pillar. Well, the first thing I want to say is to build a pillar, to become a pillar, to dedicate your life to being a pillar. If you've listened to this series and you feel the conviction and call to step into building your life as a pillar, the starting point is a strong framework of faithfulness. Now, what's interesting is when you read then, you go back and you see how these bronze pillars were made and you go back to the beginning of the scriptures of like, okay, how did God bear loads in the tabernacle? It was a tent. What did it begin with? They don't begin with magnificent stone pillars. If we actually go back to Exodus 26, verse 15, it says, make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. What's the meaning of acacia wood? Well, acacia wood, acacia wood is the tree of the wilderness. You would find this all throughout the desert. It's actually linked to the Australian wattle. And it's a sign that in the wilderness, there is something to be found and discovered. This is not through your vast pockets that can fund your building project, going and getting the best craftsmen out there to wow the world. This is actually God saying to the people of God that in the midst of this wilderness, there's something to be discovered when you're using the way I look at the world. And what marked Acacia Wood is its ability to flourish in tough conditions. It's a tree which is durable, resilient, strong. It's resistant to decay and parasites. And this resilience can be seen as a metaphor for the unwavering purity and holiness of God in the midst of a fallen world. And what does this tell us? This tells us that becoming a pillar begins with a framework. 
We don't start by just being the formed pillar. We actually go on a journey with God, often through difficult times and wilderness moments. And it's actually through the journey that God constructs us into a pillar. A pillar does not happen in a moment. It happens through a process. And what we see in the story of Exodus is the framework which survives in the desert out of which God uses to create a dwelling place is a framework that is built out of faithfulness and obedience. This is all God wanted from Solomon. This is all God wants from his people, faithfulness and obedience. This is the lesson of the wilderness for the people of God in the book of Exodus. This is the lesson for us. Now, the second thing, if you are going to build your life into a pillar, is you need a foundation, a pillar constructed on uneven sand, unsteady ground, would not be able to fulfill what it's called to do. So what is the foundation that we need to build upon? Well, in Exodus 33, verse 7 to 10, we get this really interesting moment. There's a flashback. And actually goes back to the time before the tabernacle was constructed. The tabernacle was a tent that the people, like, like the presence of God dwelt in. But there's this mysterious reference that we need to explore. So this is a flashback. It says this. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Hang on. I thought the tabernacle came after this. Tabernacles given on the mountain. This is something that's happening before. What on earth is this tent? There's another tent? It's like a character that appears in a story and creates a plot twist. What is this other tent that they've kept hidden from us until 33 chapters into the book of Exodus? Well, it says something about here. It's called the tent of meeting. There's a kind of meeting that happens there. It says anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. While the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. There, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So what is this place? The tent of meeting was a separate space that God had constructed before Sinai. It was for people who wished to meet with the Lord. God is not dwelling as he dwells in the tabernacle, but it's like this meeting place. Now, at this point, what's being laid? A foundation is being laid for the coming tabernacle where God will dwell. But those accessing it are the hungry. Those accessing it are the ones who, those who want to meet with God. This is like the startup. This is the place of those who seek. This is the gathering point for those who are hungry. And at this point, because of the unholiness of the people, it's outside the tent. And even some biblical scholars say what this passage is saying is that Moses had to move it further away. And what we see here is that the foundation for what God is going to do dwell at the center of the camp, because the tabernacle is in the center of the camp, 
is that a foundation's being laid and those who wish to seek God must move outside of the camp. What's the camp representative of? It's the camp that's representative of the majority, what everyone's thinking, the common denominator. It's a thought of the day. And this is being laid in a hidden place. You have to leave behind and go away from what everyone else is thinking and go to this hidden place, meet with God. What does this tell us? It tells us that pillars are those who invest at the beginning. They are sowers in the harvest early. Now we see there are people who see Moses going and they get up and they just stay at the front of their tent, their little world, what they know, what is comfortable, what is familiar. And watch Moses do it. But then there are those who go to the tent of meeting outside of the camp. Now what you notice too, again, just brilliant little subtle clue of where things are going, but super important. The last line. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, N-U-N, did not leave the tent. Joshua appears here. Now, who was Moses' offsider? It's Aaron. Aaron could speak. Aaron was great at presentation. Aaron had gone before Pharaoh. Aaron had led with Moses as the people walked out of Egypt. He'd been by Moses' side. He held up his arms. He'd gone through the waters as they had split. But we saw, I think it was last week, at the Golden Calf, There's a moment where what Aaron does is succumb to the will of the people around him and he fears the crowd and gives into their desire to worship something and creates this golden calf. And tragically, Deuteronomy 34 verse 9 says, uh, sorry, Numbers uh, 20 verse 24 says, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my commands at the waters at Meribah. The whole, when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, all the Israelites mourned for him for 30 days. He's a good guy. He's a great man. He doesn't get to enter the promised land. God hands the baton across to the next person who will be the pillar around which he builds his people. And what we see in this passage of the tents of meeting is an insight of how God builds pillars before they have any profile of how God builds pillars in the hidden places, of how God builds pillars before anyone recognizes them as pillars. It's those who linger in the tent. It's those who are formed in the presence of God. It's those who spend time in the prayer room when no one else sees. We wake early, stay late, Speak to God in the quiet spaces away from the audience of people and opinion and reorientate their lives around the audience of one. And we see what this does is there's this beautiful imagery of a pillar at the tent of meeting, a pillar of fire of God's glory. This is the glory cloud I talked about a number of weeks ago that we see on top of the Mount Sinai. This is the glory cloud which comes over moments of chaos and raw creation and transforms it into what God wants to do and create new creation. So the third thing that God builds pillars out of is a fire. A fire. You see, pillars are built as they seek 
the pillar of God's glory. That's what Moses and Joshua are doing. And Deuteronomy 34 verse 9 says, this is now later on, as Joshua has been formed as a pillar in the hidden places, it says, Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. As someone who has been shaped by the pillar of God's glory, as someone who has had his hands laid on Moses, the baton has been passed. What we see, the evidence of this is the people then follow in faithfulness and obedience. Pillars have the fire of expectation simmering in their bellies. The great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, speaking of this passage, you notice the spirit of expectation. Joshua left behind in the tent, lest while Moses is reporting to the people, God might grant a further revelation. He knows that there was more to come. Moses was taking no risks. He was holding on. He remained in the presence of God through his deputy servant. And when the day comes that you and I are on the tiptoe of expectation, we can be sure that God is moving and that something unusual is about to take place. Pillars are those who have in their belly a fire of expectation. They are willing to do whatever for God to move. They're so willing that they're willing to do it without receiving any acclamation, affirmation, positive feedback, recognition. They're people who are willing to spend their time in the presence of God, to bring the presence of God into the most ordinary moments of life. They're people who are prepared to walk with the presence of God in difficult seasons and in the moments of wilderness. I think we're at a moment, a transition point. I began this series talking about how I think the church in Australia is at a transition point. There are incredible people who are faithful, who have prayed and served for years. And many of them will soon be moving on to a better land. And the question of the health of the Australian church is not what does church look like? What sort of worship are we doing? How are the size of the congregations? What sort of technology do we use? What's the liturgy look like, lack of liturgy? All of these things, yeah, they're important in some way, but they're secondary to whether there are pillars who are willing to step into what God is doing. And I know that there is. I know that God has been speaking to people. There has been a marked cultural change in our church, even in the last like eight weeks. There are moments when you can hear in the worship a greater freedom, a greater hunger, when the prayers at a prayer meeting are different than what they were a year ago. Well, there's a sense that if you've continued on with what God is doing post-COVID and all the disruptions, there's a sense that you're not here because of habit or routine, but you're actually here as part of 
what God wants to do next. I can't remember if I told this story, but I'll tell it again. I received the news uh, about Tree uh, when I was in London. And I was really conflicted, like, you want to get home, but the problem was it was the coronation weekend. I think I heard on the Thursday night, and I was due to go to Oxford to speak at uh, St. Aldate's Church in Oxford. And Trudy and I talked, and it was hard to get a flight back, so it just felt to stay on. Um, we had the appointment on midweek. And God just used that time powerfully. It's one of those moments where we've been through a really difficult period at church, coming out of COVID, other difficult things happened, and I was absolutely exhausted. And I remember when I heard the news, it was one of those moments of like, are you kidding me? God, like, how much more are you meant to take? And I just remember clearly these moments of sitting in my hotel room in London, looking out, across the city and just bemused like you'd been winded. I took the train up to Oxford and never been to Oxford before, but the ground of Oxford is ground that has been tread by characters like C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Cranmer, Ridley, who burnt alive for their faith, Whitfield, Wesley, I actually gave, I, I actually gave the platform to Pillar's talk at St. Aldate's at their six o'clock service. And they told me afterwards that underneath the floorboards of the church, there is something like 300 Christian saints buried, people of that congregation that have been there for something crazy, like hundreds and hundreds of years, all pointing towards Jerusalem. They mentioned how I think like three rows on this side, J.L. Packer, the famous Christian theologian, had sort of come to faith. Whitfield had run down the side of the church through this side door and collapsed before the altar and given his life to God. And as I finished my talk, someone Ponsonby, who's one of the vicars there, uh, so took me out the side so I wouldn't be swamped with people because you know people were sort of like I'd shared the news of what I just learned and. It just so struck me as I walked through these doorways that these great people of God had walked. That we were standing on the shoulders of giants, that God uses pillars. But what I also learned after that was the way in which pillars are so important. Trudy shared that when something like this happens, you don't look for platforms, you look for pillars, the people who prayed, the people who brought meals, the people who served us. So what I'd like to end with is an invitation to become a pillar. It's an invitation. It can't be something that is forced. It's a response to the Holy Spirit. Some pillars will have prominence, others won't. But it's a yes to stepping into that great chain of Christians who have said yes to God with all of their heart. Yes in the good times, yes in the bad times.
So what are we going to do now? We're going to stand. And I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. There'll be some people on the side to pray for you. But I just want to just pray a simple prayer. Let's close our eyes. God, we recognize that we are in a world which encourages us to build a platform, and that platform is only for the glory of humans. We confess and repent when we've done that. We've all done it. We've all fallen short of the glory of God because we've pursued our own glory. And so, God, I just want to pray now for those who you have been calling to be pillars in the living temple that you're building. Your church is the dwelling place of your presence. And we know that you dwell in the midst of our lives, in the midst of your community of people. So, God, we just pray now, Holy Spirit, come. I just want to pray in faith that there's decisions made in this moment of people saying yes to you, to give their whole lives to you, to be a pillar. Father, I pray for more than one because pillars do their job supporting weight with other pillars. So God, we want to say yes to serving you, to seeking you, sharing you with others. We want to say no to the world and yes to you. And God, we pray we can be pillars to those we work with, pillars to those we're friends with, pillars to those we're related to, pillars in our community and neighbourhoods, in our church. And we want to build a life that gives glory to you, only glory to you. So we just pray now as we worship that the response of our heart will be a yes to you. And then we will look back on this moment in years to come as a transformative moment. Come Holy Spirit, do your work amongst us, we ask and pray. Amen.